Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning to the young ladies and gentlemen that are in training. Currently, welcome to today's service. My name is Kyle. If you're visiting with us, I want to introduce myself. I serve as a lead pastor here and want to welcome you uh, here. We're, we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. If you have your Bible, you can turn to, uh, or I would ask that you would turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, that's found in your New Testament. Uh, just after First and Second Timothy, before the book of Philemon. It's a short book, so you might could pass it depending on the way of the arrangement of your Bibles. Uh, but it's, it's a three-chapter book, and we are beginning a new series today in this book. Uh, the reason for that is that Titus gives us one of the best looks at the relationship between the gospel truth, the truth that we receive from God about Christ Jesus, about our sin, about our need for a Savior, uh, about how we can be born again and live for the Lord. Uh, this gives us the relationship between those gospel truths and the godliness that they require, the, the life lived in response to these. So in this book, we see clearly how the gospel effects, how it causes, how it creates godliness. And we also see in this book how godliness then affects, right, affects, shapes, how it adorns the gospel in your life. These two things work together. So our passage for today that we'll be looking at is Titus 1, 1 through 4. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Uh, I'm going to read that now, and then we'll pray. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the, before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word which we have just read. This is your word, Father. Lord, these are words that you have spoken to us uh, through the Apostle Paul. and We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive them now. Lord, open our minds to hear them, to understand them, to comprehend them, to know them well, Lord. But not just to know them in our mind, help them to seep deep into our hearts. That we might become men and women, boys and girls, who take seriously the Word of God, who take seriously the godliness that it requires, who commit ourselves to Christ Jesus as we find life in Him. Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for this time we have now together as a church family in it. We ask that You bless this moment. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Titus is one of Paul's pastoral epistles, a letter written to pastors of a church. Paul writes to this dear companion, this partner in ministry, whom is Titus. And we know quite a bit about Paul. Most of you know who the Apostle Paul is. Paul was the one-time persecutor who went by the name of Saul, and he persecuted the church heavily. He oversaw, in Acts chapter 6, the stoning of Stephen, one of the first martyrs that we have on record. Uh, he is dramatically converted then in Acts chapter 9 as he was on his way to persecute more Christians in a place called Damascus. Now, while on his way... Christ himself appears to Paul or Saul in that moment and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
which Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? That was the moment that Saul's life changed forever. Much of the rest of Acts, over uh, two-thirds even of Acts, tells us the story of Paul's missionary journeys, of where he went, of his preaching of the gospel, his founding of churches, his training of leaders and pastors in various areas, and maybe one of the most important things that we read about there for our own faith is we read about Paul's sufferings, that he suffered great harm for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. It was costly to him. Now, Titus is not well known in Scripture unless you are familiar with the book of Titus. You might recall his name at other times. Uh, It's believed by many that he is one of Paul's early converts during his ministry at Antioch. So after Paul's conversion, he spent time with a man named Barnabas ministering in Antioch preaching the gospel there, evangelizing the lost. It's thought to be that Titus became a Christian under Paul's ministry there. This 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 idea is supported by this passage, at least in this, that Paul addresses Titus as my true child in a common faith. He is no doubt a convert of Paul's. He is one whom Paul has led to the Lord, and they now share faith. Paul is not speaking in biological terms. He's not saying, you are my son, birth by birth. He's saying, you're my son by spiritual birth. Through my ministry, the Lord made you new. Titus is a Gentile Greek. He's converted by the preaching of the gospel. He's born under Paul's ministry. He became a fellow minister with him, much like we read about Timothy doing. This is why there is a pastoral epistle addressed to both of these men. Paul is not saying that the faith that they share is, is common, that it's normal, or that it's uh, widespread even. He's not saying that it holds little value. What he's saying is that this faith, by this faith, we are united together in Christ. That, that Paul, as a Jew who formerly persecuted Christians in the name of upholding the way the Jews viewed God, is drastically different than this young Gentile man. He's saying we, are, we share now a union in Christ wrought in us by the Spirit of God through the preached Word, through the Gospel. It's also clear in this letter that he is a well-trusted partner in ministry. He is referred to thoroughly in 2 Corinthians as Paul writes there about a, a letter we don't have to the Corinthians that apparently was even more scathing than the first Paul sent. He writes there about Titus and the way that they received him. He calls him a brother, a partner, a fellow worker in the ministry. We'll look more at Titus' assignment next week as that really begins to be spelled out for us. But in the name of context, I want us to have some ideas of what, what is Titus doing? What's the purpose of the letter to Titus? Well, Titus has been left on the island of Crete. Uh, He's there to put what remained into order, to appoint elders in every town. I think we have a map of this that we can show you. Yeah, so you see Crete here. It's off the the mainland of Greece, and it's an island. It measures uh, roughly 160 miles long by 35 miles wide. It had a fairly large population. It was in a, a, a port area, if you will, by way of travel from Jerusalem on up to Rome. You would have stopped near the island of Crete or on the island of Crete for resupply, restocking. 
the, the thing about Crete that kind of was fun, uh, fun for me to see, one of the things was this, is that uh, it's a mountainous area. There's a mountain range that spans the length of the island, and the tallest mountain on this island is roughly 8,000 feet tall. So it's a rough terrain. But maybe rougher than the terrain are the people of Crete, the, the men and women who hold residence on the island of Crete. Crete hosts multiple cities. It, it housed both Jews and Gentiles. There are Jews who we will read about who are stirring up division in, on the island. They're stirring up division in the churches who are committing themselves uh, to maintain, uphold Jewish customs that Christians are not called to uphold. It also hosts many Gentiles, people who are filled with worldliness, who have no idea of who God is or a purpose or a reason for even following the Lord. And there's more even than that. Titus's assignment is not an easy one. It's a difficult assignment. He's told, in, again in verse 5, to put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town. So he's to go throughout the island, not just one part of the island, but go throughout the island and ensure that the churches are healthy. There's a lot of difficult work to do, and so Paul begins his letter with a reminder about the purpose of the work. Here's why we're here, Titus. Here's what this is. Here's why we exist. Here's what we're for. Here's what we're about. It's a purpose for the work, and it's an encouragement to stand strong in God. Let's go back to verse 1 and begin our study here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is giving us two massive statements about his own identity, about who he is. Servant of God. The word servant is the word doulos in the Greek. It means slave. It's often translated servant, bondservant, slave. But the, the word is the same anytime you see that. It's the word slave. Paul is saying, I'm a slave of God. I'm a slave of God. Paul's identity is first and foremost who he is because, uh, Paul's identity first and foremost is who he is because of what God has done in his life. He's saying, I'm a slave of God. God has changed who I am. He has made me new. God intervened in Paul's life. God saved Paul from his sins. Now, I want to remind you that when we read the word God, we ought not immediately think Father, but we ought to think Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul has the triune God in mind here as he's thinking about what God is and how he is a slave to God, about who God is. He's saying, I'm a slave to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit. Paul's received a new identity because of the work of Christ Jesus on the cross, but because of uh, the, the foreordained work of God from eternity past, as we'll, as we'll see in a moment. What I once was, Paul is saying, I am no longer. What I am now belongs to God. I am His. He is mine. In Galatians 2.20, Paul really sums up this thought. He says this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
He's saying, I am a slave to God. My life is not my own. My life belongs to Him. This is the way slaves talk. This is the way servants talk. Brothers and sisters, this is the way we are to speak about our relation to God. God is not, as He has often treated, a slave for us to do our bidding and our beckoning, to come at our call. God is God, and we are His people. We are to submit ourselves to Him. He is in control. He has made us new. He gives us our identity. Amen? He said, I'm a slave to God. He bought me with the blood of His own Son. He owns me. My entire life is determined by Him. You'll see throughout the letter of Titus that this idea of being a slave to God is not at all a miserable thought. If you're familiar at all with the writings of Paul, you'll understand that this is by no means a miserable thought, that you're relegated to, to some, uh, some, some type of servitude that is done with a hardness of heart, that is done with, without your personality, that is done without life. That's not what Paul has in view here. What Paul has in view is, I was once dead in my sins and now I've been made alive in Christ Jesus. What Paul has in view here is thanksgiving to God for saving him out of his sin, out of his persecution of the church, revealing the true nature of God to him, revealing Christ to him that he might be a new creation created in Christ Jesus where old things have passed away, all have become new, and now he's dedicating his life, committing his life to the service of God. Paul is excited in this service. This is not a dutiful thing. This is not him saying, I'm a... I'm a slave to God, Titus. Paul is saying, I am held captive, Titus, by the goodness and kindness of God toward me in salvation that I can do nothing more and nothing less than surrender the the totality of my life to God. I'm His slave. He is my master. He is my Lord. Amen? Hopefully you grasp the difference between Slave and slave. He's excited about what God has done for him. We should also note that he mentions this first. It's a statement of humility before he makes a statement about the authority which God has given him. Paul has been given great authority by the Son of of God. Jesus Christ appears to him and calls him to apostleship, to a ministry that's given to to certain men, specific men, men whom we know the names of now. He says, I'm a slave to God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this title of apostle, again, belongs only to those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ, or witnessed Him personally after His resurrection, it belongs only to those who have received a call to apostleship personally from God. There there are no true apostles today. Not in the sense of what we see in the Bible here. This office is finished. It, It was a special ministry given by Christ for the establishment of the church. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about a local church. I'm talking about global church, universal church. What these men were given, what these men were able to do, 
has not been seen again. These men were special because Christ did something special in them. In the Scriptures, we read that, they were the, that, that Christ was the cornerstone of the church, but that the apostles were the foundation of the truth that we now know. Meaning they're the ones who penned it. They're the ones who wrote it out. They're the ones who taught it. They're the ones who received the instruction from the Holy Spirit that we might know God's breathed Word. Apostles were to be deputies of Christ Jesus. They were not to go anywhere, say anything, or do anything that opposed what Christ told them to do. They were to follow Him wholly. Jesus commissioned them. They were either commissioned by Him, Himself, or by other apostles who used those two qualifying things to call an apostle to apostleship. We see that in Acts chapter 1 with the calling of Matthias. But Paul establishes his humility first. He makes a statement about humility. He makes a statement about who I am and how this informs what he does. He says, I am a slave of God. And then he talks about his Christ-given authority. An authority that, that meant Titus should follow what he says, that Titus should listen to him. An authority that meant that the elders who Titus would go and instruct should listen to Paul. An authority that meant that the men and women who would be under the instruction of Titus and those elders should listen to what Paul is saying as Christ's apostle. It's a heavenly authority. It was meant to be understood in that way. And they would have understood it in that way as this was read aloud before them. As Titus read this, he would have known exactly what was being said by the Apostle Paul here about his apostleship. As noted, though, in Galatians 2.20, whatever Paul is, he is first a new creation in Christ Jesus. Whatever he might become, whatever God calls him to do, he is first God's child. God lives in him. And so now he gives his life by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for Paul. Paul was one of 13 apostles. Paul has a lot of reason to boast in himself, to be arrogant even, although we could argue that would make him probably not worthy of being an apostle all to begin with. But, but he knows that he is. He knows what he's been called to. He knows the grace of God that he's received, and God has made him a new creation. God has called him to apostleship. God blesses his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul was wildly fruitful for the Lord. It, it's, not, it's not hyperbole to say that we are Christians today because of the ministry of Paul. We, we owe Paul a lot. But Paul would say, no, you owe God all of that. God blesses His ministry. God is the source of all that is good in Paul's life. Brothers and sisters, we ought to take something from Paul here. Whatever you are, whatever your identity might be, whatever you think of first when someone says, well, who are you? Or one of the first things we're prone to ask, especially as men, is what do you do for a living? And that kind of sets the trajectory of our identity, but whatever you are, whether you're a recent convert, whether you're a mature Christian, whether you're a son or whether you're a daughter, whether you're a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, an employee or an employer, whether you're a friend, whether you're a brother or a sister, 
Whatever you may be, if you are a Christian, you are God's child first. That's where you get your identity. This is where you align yourself as you say, I am this maybe, but first and foremost, I'm settling myself on my identity in Christ Jesus. Something that God has given to us. If you are a believer in Christ, it's because God saved you by His gracious intervention. It's because God regenerated you by the power of the Holy Spirit to become His child through the work of Christ on the cross, which you no doubt heard about through some proclamation of the Word, either by reading it for yourself or by hearing it taught or proclaimed by a friend or a pastor or someone. God has made you new. You owe your life to God. We live in a world that encourages us to have whatever identity you want to have. And if you want to change that identity tomorrow, change it. If you want to change it the day after that, change it. Become whatever you want. But but Christians, Christians are not to buy that wretched lie. That's a lie of this world. That's a lie from the mouth of Satan himself. Christians are, however, to stand on the truth of God's word. Christians are to understand that whatever I am by God's grace, I am first God's child. And that informs now my behavior. That informs now my identity as a husband or a father or male or female. Two genders, right? I I am first his child. He is first my God. He gives me my marching orders, and I commit myself to do whatever the Lord commands of me because I'm a slave to God. He saved me out of the pit of hell. He saved me out of my sins and gave me new life. I'm His. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a servant of God. You're a servant of God. Next we see in verses in the following verses up through verse 3, we see the, the revealing of his purpose. He talks about his identity, that I'm a servant of God, I'm, a, I'm an apostle of Christ. And, and then he gets into his purpose for life. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. I want to summarize what we see here with this this statement. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The, The gospel, received by faith and hope of eternal life, forms godliness in your life. The gospel received by faith in hope of eternal life forms godliness in you. It's what creates godliness in you. And if we ever hope to be godly men or women, boys or girls, we must first understand the truths of God's word. We must first come to faith in Christ. We must first be transformed 
by those things. So let's examine the two purposes that Paul lays out. One is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now the word elect is seen throughout the Old and New Testament. The word elect just simply refers to those who are chosen by God unto salvation. You see the word elect as you think about Israel and what God does there. You see the word elect in the New Testament. None of the writers in the New Testament are shy about using this word elect to describe the people of God and their identity as New Testament believers, which unites them with the same saving work of God in the Old Testament. It creates a one people of God. New Testament believers, like Old Testament believers, are such because they have been chosen by God to be His people. God miraculously works on their behalf. God miraculously makes them children of God. The Apostle John, who was the beloved disciple when writing his gospel, just 12 verses in gets into this, this truth. He says, but to all who did receive him. He's talking about Christ came to the Jews first and they didn't receive him. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born, not of blood, meaning it wasn't their birthright. They weren't born because they were Jews. They weren't born of God out of their, out of their Jewish heritage. They weren't born of the will of the flesh, meaning they didn't will up the, they didn't muster up the strength to save themselves. He says, nor of the will of man, meaning I can't cause salvation for someone else. As much as I want all to be saved, I can't make it to where all men and women believe in Christ Jesus. They're responsible for their belief or unbelief. And he says, but of God, who were born, but of God, who were born of God. You see, Paul's ministry was about the faith of God's elect. By the preaching of God's word, the gospel, as we see in verse 3, he says he manifested through the preaching of his word. However, it would have also served to strengthen the faith of God's elect. So not only does, it, does the preaching bring about the faith, but it strengthens the faith. In those two themes, what we see is initial belief and ongoing belief. The initial coming to the Lord for salvation and the ongoing to the Lord for salvation, reminding ourselves that we are his children, that I'm a slave to God. And we see how Paul's ministry was then for the sake of God's elect, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul's ministry serves us in this way today. I'm, it's, it's fuzzy in my mind, but I've always attributed my salvation to memorizing Scripture in Awana. And of course, having parents who were raising me to love the Lord, to know the Lord, had me in that program to begin with, were helping me learn those verses. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 was the verse that really stands out as I think back in my life. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Amen? It's God's gift to us. It's not a work of our own doing. And I just remember laying in my bed as a child thinking, I need salvation. I, I need the Lord to save me. 
but it happens through the faithful proclamation of God's Word. It's, it's God's Word that pricks a heart. It's, God, it's what God uses to transform a life. He uses His Word. And Paul faithfully penned those words in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which I now believe wholeheartedly by the grace of God. It's the things that have been preached for millennia. It's what's led to millions and more conversions for Christ, disciples for the Lord. It's been producing salvation for sinners and growth in God's people forever. God's Word has. And Paul says, this is the purpose of my ministry. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He also says it's for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. The truth in view here is all of God's Word, but verse 3 makes it crystal clear that the gospel is certainly in view. When you read the words manifested in His Word through preaching, that preaching there that's in view is the idea of heralding something. It's, it's to take something out into public and to shout it to where everyone can then hear it. It's to stand in an assembly and say, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to a reconciled relationship with a holy God. Paul's ministry was about helping others gain knowledge about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It came through his preaching. This knowledge, most of us under, have a working definition at least of, of knowledge, but here it means, some, it means coming to understand something clearly and distinctly or to understand something as true or valid. It, it's, it's knowing something and ongoing knowledge of something, growing in your knowledge of something. The, the word is often associated with a personal exposure to truth as it's used here. An exposure to truth that necessitates a reaction, either a positive reaction, belief, or a negative reaction, unbelief. In other words, Paul's ministry consists of presenting the truths of the gospel, that there is a God who we know His name, who created the heavens and the earth, and He rules over all of His creation. That This God is holy and just and perfect and man rebelled against him and fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after creation. As a result, man is kicked out of the garden. He's separated from God due to sin. He now knows death. The world is fractured. His relationship with God is broken. But God intervenes by grace, at first throughout Old Testament history. But then finally, He intervenes once and for all by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, born in the image and likeness of man, to dwell on earth. But not just to live here. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ died on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all who will believe in Him. Meaning that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation will be saved. That message requires a response, doesn't it? Will you or will you not call on the Lord for your salvation from sin? Will you or will you not align yourself with God? Will you or will you not pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ? Will you or will you not live faithfully for the Lord as people who say you believe in Him? 
It requires a response. You must do something with it. And whatever you do or whatever you think about Jesus Christ will be the most important decision or thought you have in life. It determines your eternity. And by your answer, you either become a slave to God or you remain a slave to sin. The knowledge of the truth isn't dead knowledge, however. It's not mental assent. I started seminary this past week, and, and pray for me. Good heavens, pray for me. It, it's going to be great, and I'm so grateful for the men that, that I'm getting to study under and around. It's because they're committed, it seems at least on the front end, they're committed to knowledge that doesn't just puff up, right? But knowledge that builds up in love. They made a statement this week that gave me great encouragement that we will not evaluate this seminary and her success by how many people graduate with an MDiv. We'll evaluate it by, by the ministries that the men who go out of this seminary have. What, is it, what do their ministries look like? What kind of men are they? How is the Lord using them in their churches? I like that. Because I think that's, that's the kind of knowledge that the Bible talks about. That's the kind of wisdom that God has in view. It's a wisdom that's beneficial to those around you. It's a knowledge that's good for your life and good for the lives of people around you. It's godly knowledge. And so Paul doesn't have in mind here some sort of other knowledge. He has knowledge that accords with godliness, he says. It's a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, godliness here is the idea of piety. It's a devout practice for God or it's right beliefs about God. God. It's understanding God in such a way that you now live in light of Him, that you want to honor Him with your life. Romans 12, 1 through 2 talks about the knowledge of the truth that transforms the life of a believer, about how he goes from being uninterested in the things of God to fully committed to God's truth and God's ways, that he is transformed by this truth. Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is your spiritual worship? It's to give all of your life to God. What is your spiritual worship? It's to become a slave to God, to make Him your master. And in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed. It's a command with authority. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First, you present your life to God as a living sacrifice. I'm not having to kill myself because Christ died for me. But when I go under that water in baptism and I come back out, I'm signifying myself with the death and the resurrection of Christ. I went in one way and I came out a new man. When I take hold of, of the, the cup and the bread, that we'll, as we'll do in a little bit, what I'm saying is that I believe that Christ died for my sins. What I'm saying is I believe that Christ was raised again, that his body was broken so that mine doesn't have to be, so that I can receive a new covenant of grace, a covenant which God initiates with me. And now I'm surrendering my life to Him. Paul says there to do this, to do this until the Lord comes again. 
What are we doing? We're reminding ourselves that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ above all, that we are slaves to God. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't seek God's truth and strive to obey God's word. The Bible knows of no such Christians, except that they are false Christians. When you see Christians in the Bible who claim to know truth, but do not practice the godliness that goes with, they are immediately called false. They're not real. Now that's an alarming statement, because there are many people, ourselves included, let us not look outside of ourselves when we read a statement like that. Let us not immediately think of, well, those people over there, that that guy a few rows in front of me. Let us not go there in our mind. Let us first go, Lord, may this verse not apply to my heart. 1 John 3, 9. No one. How many? No one. Born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Romans 8, 8 through 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, writing to Christians, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to God. So you cannot say with your mouth on Sunday morning that you love the Lord and then say by your actions and your life, Monday through Saturday, whatever you want. If you're a slave to God, He rules every area of your life, not just Sunday morning. As we'll see throughout Titus, godliness is evidence of saving belief in the gospel. It it cannot be separated. It's it's what gives the believer salt, as Jesus says, that you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Godliness is what gives you salt. Godliness is what gives you light in a spiritually tasteless and dark world. You must adorn the gospel with godliness. Why? Why? What's what's the purpose of living such a life? Paul says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, and at the proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So sometimes we equate falsely biblical hope with a fantasy-like wishing. Like, I hope I get a better job. I, I hope my parents get me this toy for Christmas. I hope I marry a godly person. I hope I can pay off this debt. That's more wishing than biblical hope. Biblical hope is someone or something on on which expectations are centered. It's a foundation for life. Hope is really all that you have in Christ. We sang two wonderful songs this morning that remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Paul's ministry for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness was founded on hope. He says, in hope of eternal life. For the sake of the faith of the elect, for the sake of 
the truth, their knowledge of the truth, in hope of eternal life. So, how, how do we know that we have hope? How do we know that we have an expectant belief of eternal life? Like, like how can we know that we can even have such a hope, is what I'm asking. Well, he answers us. He says, because God promised. But because God promised it. God, who never lies, promised to give eternal life to those who believe in His Son. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So He promised this, and it says that He promised it before the world began. That the phrase is the same word for eternal in the Greek. The word eternal there in eternal life and the phrase for um, before the world began is the same word. And it means eternity or eternal. So, so the statement is literally more like this. In hope of eternal life in the future, which God who never lies promised from eternity in the past. That, that from eternity past to eternity future, God is in control of your salvation. From eternity past to eternity future, your hope of salvation is sure because God is the only place, person who exists in eternity. God determines it. God has established it from eternity past so that you might enjoy it in eternity future. Amen? When, when Satan attempts to afflict you then, remember that God promised it. That, and that because God promised it, it's my greatest Hope, it's my expectation. I base my life on this hope. I become slave, a slave to God because he will, I will dwell eternity with him in heaven. And so when Satan afflicts you, when Satan comes to you to make you doubt the goodness of God, when Satan comes to you with anxiety or fear or tempts you to sin, remind him that he is the father of nothing but lies. And that your Father resides in heaven. That your Father is eternal. That your Father has given you real hope. Has made real life available for you. That your Father is unable to lie. That, that your Father has made a promise. And all who believe in it have hope. All who believe in it have hope that is sure. Paul says elsewhere that this hope is sure, that it's undefiled, that it's kept in heaven for you. It's secure, brothers and sisters. You have no reason to be buffeted in this life because you have hope in Christ. You have no reason to, to, to fall on your face in failure because you have hope in Christ. This doesn't mean that we don't have despair. This doesn't mean that we don't have depressive thoughts. This doesn't mean that we're not afflicted at times. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that in your affliction, you go to Christ. In your affliction, you don't believe the lies of Satan, but you proclaim the truths of God. There's hope in eternity past that was manifested in eternity past. It's kept in eternity future for you. God has promised it, and so we trust Him. It says that He then, at the proper time, knowing this, He, he began it from eternity past, 
But at the proper time, that means in his own most advantageous time, he manifested. It means he clearly reveals it. How does he reveal it? It says in his word. God's word is the communication by God. But typically, even so, the gospel is in view here and that he says it's manifested by his word through the preaching, which is the public proclamation by a herald, as I mentioned earlier. It's especially a message of God concerning salvation. Romans 10, 13 through 15 reminds us of this. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. That's hope. That's, that's hope, that's gospel hope, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him, Paul says in verse 14, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, someone heralding? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, Paul says. This is what Paul was called to by God. So this is the ministry given to me for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. That's the proclamation of the good news. He was to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus so that all who call on the name of Jesus may obtain the hope of eternal life. He says, I've been entrusted That word entrusted, that's the phrase of a slave. That's the phrase of a deputy. Right? I've I've got a message from the king. I've got a message from my master. I've got a message from the sheriff. Good news. Paul says, I've been entrusted with it. I'm a slave to God. Here I stand. I can do no other, as Luther said in the Reformation. The gospel received by faith and hope of eternal life forms godliness in your life. Remember, there is no such thing as a Christian who claims to believe God but will not follow Him. Martin Luther said this, he says, It is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate light and heat from fire. You see, we mustn't try to live a life in faith separate from godliness. That's foolishness. We're deceiving ourselves. We'll be like the people we read about in Titus in the coming weeks. But the appearance of godliness, but denied its power. Belief in the gospel is a belief that requires death. Jesus says, if any of you wants to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says, if you'll try to save your own life, you'll lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake, he'll find life. See, God's economy is different than our economy. Selfishness is promoted in our economy, but selflessness is where godliness rests in the economy of God. It's where you find life, Christ says. Belief in the gospel is a belief that requires death. Because belief in the gospel requires belief in the death of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ. Somebody already died on your behalf. 
The belief in the gospel then is a call to come and die. It's a call to receive new life in Christ. The gospel is a guarantee of eternal life. It's the hope of our salvation. It's where our faith rests, is in Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, boys and girls, I urge you then, believe in Jesus. Believe in God the Father. Believe in God the Holy Spirit. Find life through Christ Jesus today. Believe in such a way that your affections are transformed. Believe in such a way that your desires are made new. Believe in such a way that your sinful desires die and your desires for holiness rise. Turn to God in your sin. None of this means, none of this talk about a holy God means that you are to turn away from God in your sin. It means that you have already turned away from God in your sin and that the only way to find life now is to turn to God in your sin, to repent of those sins, to own those sins, to confess those sins, to repent of them, and to believe in Jesus Christ. That is where you will find salvation. Go to Him. Do not hide from Him. Run to Him. I think it was the the Puritan Thomas Watson who said, be as quick to repent as you would be to receive grace from God. Be as quick to repent as you would have God be quick to show you grace. Amen? Don't hide from Him. The gospel is a guarantee of eternal life. He's the only one who can make you whole. He's the only one who can grant you true life. So I urge you today to live your Christian life as a slave to God. Live your Christian life as one who has received a new life by grace through faith in Jesus. Live your Christian life as one who is growing in God's truth, your understanding of it, your knowledge of it, your your working of it, your your ability to, to speak it. Live your life as a Christian, as one who has the hope of eternal life because you've settled yourself on the promise of God. Amen? The gospel received by faith in hope of eternal life forms godliness in your life. Amen. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've been with us now in it. I pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts. Help us now to believe your word, to follow your commands. Help us to be quick to repent where we have not followed your commands, where we have gone our own way, where we've become our own God, deciding what's right or what's wrong for us. Help us, Lord, to live in light of your truth. Help us, Lord, to have lives built on faith in Christ, lives that have hope of eternal life as our foundation. Help us to have lives which we're growing in truth which accords with godliness. Help us to be godly men and women, godly boys and girls. We're growing in our understanding of Jesus, growing in our faith in Him, and who are growing in our, our godliness, our ability, our desire, our drive to live as God has commanded us to live. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your word today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.